Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Let's have all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, rated PG-13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. You're listening to Rock and or Roll on BJ. So more than 20 years ago now, I bought this cassette tape at a thrift store in downtown Waukesha, Wisconsin, where I grew up. And the cover was a photocopy of a crude drawing that was pretty obviously inspired by Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction. And the band was called Stokes Aster. And I didn't know at the time, but that's actually the name of a flower. But I thought it was a cool band name. Interesting cover. The cassette was just a black tape with red stickers on it with the song titles handwritten on the stickers. And there's four songs, two songs on each side of the cassette. So this was obviously a homemade, you know, demo or whatever of a, a local band from the area. And so being me, I bought it. I figured it would be entertaining probably cost a buck or something and I was right it was entertaining the four songs on the tape called downtown the song we just heard three spitballs black sun and bottle of spirit Shy, I, I, I. 
and I thought the recording was decent. The guitars sounds good. Uh, it's all well played, decently mixed, and the singer has a decent voice. So it wasn't bad, especially considering that these songs were created by four teenagers in Wisconsin in 1988. I actually like it. bought it I was probably expecting it to be funny I don't think I was expecting it to be you know pretty good so for a long time I've wanted to incorporate Stokes Aster into an episode of the podcast somehow and I tried to find any of the band members over the years on Facebook and such but I was unsuccessful and recently I tried again and it was when I searched Stokes Aster Band. I searched that on Facebook and a picture popped up. A picture of the band posted by the drummer. So I sent him a message. And on this episode, we're going to hear from Dave Shepke 
who was the drummer in Stokes Astor. And also, after this home recording, what I have was recorded in Dave's parents' basement on a four-track. After this, the band actually recorded in a professional studio, and Dave sent me those songs as well. So we're going to get to hear some more Stokes Astor. This has got to be the most obscure music I've ever featured on the podcast. I mean, we're talking about a four-song cassette that was homemade, and then we're talking about studio recordings that were never released in any way. So check it out. Here's the conversation I had with the drummer from Stokes Astor, Dave Shepke. So 
all four of us, uh, the members of the band, um, which were jo uh, John Jensen, uh, who was a singer and harmonica player, some piano too, and keyboard or guitar, I think. And then uh, Brian Shank was the guitar player and um, John Berger was the bass player. All four of us went to high school together. Berger, Shank, and I were in the same grade, a couple years ahead of Jensen. And uh, so, you know, um, typical stuff. Uh, Shank and I were in, in bands all the way back to like, you know, 13 years old. That was for the four of us, for the most part, our first, you know, endeavoring into, into writing our own music. We'd all been in, you know, sort of cover bands and stuff before that. So that was the beginning of it for, for us. And, um, you know, the band was only together for a couple of years. It was one of those groups that had a good, a good affinity for direction, but the nuances of, of the direction were completely uh, in disarray. Like, it was one of those, I've never been in a band that argued so much, but, you know, it probably had more to do with being 18, 19 years old and just being so strong-headed about everything. But nonetheless, we all had this sort of vision of, of trying to be in a band at that time, which was at the crest of, you know, alternative music, right? So um, we were very anti the sort of the, um, you know, the established pop metal rock scene. You know, we were, we were a rock band, but with influences that were pretty, pretty spread out artistically, you know, looking at bands that were, were to us more creative. And at that time, you know, 87 was, I think was when we started playing together, you know, we were looking more at, at um, bands like um, Pink Floyd and the Misfits and uh, the replacements and, you know, other like weird stuff like the cocktail, cocktail twins and, you know, be, also being inspired by Jane's Addiction and, and incidentally, Guns N' Roses in the beginning, because they were pretty much a kind of a, a raw alternative band at the first album, at least it just got so famous, right? In the beginning, it was like, this is something a little bit different. But anyways, um, so we had some pretty wide ranging influences, like a, like a lot of bands do. And uh, again, like I said, thinking um, in terms of the alternative scene and trying to find our way. At that time, in 87, in the music business in Milwaukee, you know, we were, we were Waukesha County. Uh, we all went to Kettle Marine High School, but in that, in the scene, it was so much still, so much metal, you know, so much pop metal, especially. And if you wanted to play clubs anywhere, you had to go. You definitely had to go into Milwaukee. And so we didn't start playing anything cool, <laughs> as far as we were concerned, until we started going into the east side of Milwaukee, playing at uh, like the the Unicorn and the Odd Rock Cafe. Where else did we play? Uh, we played the Toad Cafe, I believe. Stuff like that, but our our beginning stages of playing out as a band were opening for for rock like metal bands and stuff. We um, we also went to high school with a group out of Waukesha or the Waukesha area too called um, Renegade, and they turned into a band called Mass Optica. We were all real good friends, so we would open for them, and they were also in turn uh, opening for Realm a lot. Who mm -hmm. at that time was just they had just signed their deal with Roadrunner. And they were huge, as far as in our eyes, especially. Um, so we did, we got to do the, we were the classic, you know, opening band before the opening band sort of thing. 
and we got to do some stuff at the um, the first metal fest that happened in Milwaukee. Um, we were like one of the first bands to play, even though we weren't a metal band. Mm-hmm. But it was like Realm and Acrofet and um, and that whole scene. But anyways, Renegade was in on all that, so they kind of got us involved in some of that cool stuff. Got to know those dudes a little bit, um, that sort of thing. Uh, and then, uh, you know, like the tape that you have is just like the very beginnings of us trying to record ourselves. We The first thing we did when we got together as a band was to try to start write music. And we, we did that right off the bat. But kind of turning back to what I was saying before about trying to play out and find, you know, people to play with and stuff such it was hard to do as an opening band or uh, as an original band especially in in like waukesha county area waukesha area because there just weren't any venues that had that sort of stuff so we didn't really know what to do so we started playing a bunch of covers and kind of did the you know split the show up you know half cover half original thing we got kind of into a series of that for a period of time until we kind of settled on let's let's just focus on writing music and that's so like the tape that you have is us just committing to you know recording ourselves and uh and when we were playing out being an original band so uh i think that's a four song tape on there and that was recorded in my uh parents basement i believe on just a four track cassette and we just duplicated it ourselves you know the band Probably the high point of the band's existence was we uh, somehow managed an, an opening slot for De Kreutzen, um, which was actually another band that was a really big influence, uh, especially on our guitar or our excuse me, our bass player John Berger and singer John Jensen. I mean, those guys were big De Kreutzen fans, and De Kreutzen had just come off of uh, a European tour, and they had released their album Century Days. So we got to open for them at a place called Shooters in Milwaukee. So we got to open for those guys. And that was kind of a high water mark for us, being around a band like that that was so accomplished and so interesting, very innovative. You know, and the, the, the band didn't last much long after that. We had read, read around that time we recorded, you know, a more official demo, uh, six-song recording uh, that we did at a studio in Waukesha called uh, Nexus Studio. That was kind of, we did that and then our guitar player quit and then that was the end of the band so we were done by summer of 89 so it started in like the fall of 87 and done by summer of 89 
And what year did you guys graduate from high school? 87, 87 oh, okay. for, for me and the bass player and uh, guitar player, uh, 89 for our singer. So, yeah, when we started gigging out in the clubs, um, he'd have to have his you know parents along or whatever, that sort of thing, because we were doing like the Unicorn and the Odd Rock, that sort of deal. We played each of those places probably four or five times um, around the course of, you know, early, late 88, um, early 89. You know the band it was it was for me a, a really important formative moment um because i i had never been involved in writing music so um those guys had a lot of vision for what they wanted you know our songs to sound like and and for how to 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 come across and i kind of just being the drummer hadn't any experience with that and it was really good for me to be in the midst of of that process. And, you know, at first I was kind of the guy that, the, oh, the drummer's speaking, you know, <laughs> offer a suggestion sort of thing. But, you know, it was good for me because working through some of that stuff, I learned how to songwrite. And, you know, they were gracious enough to, to let me be involved, even though it was kind of their songs. But it got my feet wet in, in terms of what that was like to to make music that way and not be... Just playing covers because i just that's all i had ever done as a kid playing in bands playing in cover bands and it gave me a real taste for that and and for to be honest with you for the rest of my career that's been the the main thrust of of my intention i've played in a few cover bands since but most everything i do is original music driven and it starts from playing in, with those guys because we felt like we were doing our own thing we weren't just trying to copy somebody you know and that you know, give that confidence went a long way for me at least She hasn't been home for three days. She hasn't even called her nothing. I know, I want my little girl home too. If you hear something, I'll tell you. I think she's a living rock and roll horror show.
The other guys are not in the business anymore. One of the fellows has passed, John Berger, and uh, he passed in 2006. And then the other two guys, Brian Shank and John Jensen, are both just, they're not, they don't do music professionally anymore at all. Well, you know, for thinking that it was really basically a high school band and you recorded that first tape on a four track, it's, mm -hmm. it's really good if you just look at it from that perspective. Like, what would you expect? from some high schoolers in the 80s recording on a four track and it could be a disaster you know it could, yeah. but like yeah. the guitar sound the vocal the singer was really good um just so i mean it wasn't really produced but i guess since it was your four track i guess you whatever production there was was probably you huh yeah for the most part i mean you know everybody kind of had their vision for how they wanted to sound i really had no idea i got the four track for um for graduation as a kid mm -hmm. for my high school graduation you know and uh i just wanted rec to record anything so i was a bit of a of a kind of a sound research nut and um so i, I you know i had done a lot of research on how to do things but excuse me nonetheless I, I really didn't know what i was doing and i didn't have very good gear and i and i was trying to control it more than i probably should have as i've learned more about production but but yeah, at the time, man, you know, it was like, just get anything on tape. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that's, that's cool that you think that I, I, I think a lot of that starts with just the way each, you know, sort of each person had their vision for their sound because it wasn't really so much a, oh, you, you know, you got to sound this particular way or trying to direct anything like that. 
everything was pretty self-contained. Um, I will say this about the band, um, our guitar player, Brian, he was way ahead the ahead of the rest of us in, in terms of like musicality, musical vision concepts. He was, he was a guy that was, he was coming from so many interesting places that he really knew what he wanted the band to sound like, which was, you know, it was something at that age, like, and it was, so hence a lot, there's a lot of arguments, right? Cause mm. these guys, and the thing was, is he had these really interesting ideas that, that none of us knew anything about. So, and especially with the writing, the way the songs, a lot of the songs were written and the way he wanted to present them. He, he had, he came from a weird, this kind of like uh, Frank Zappa slash Kiss and, um, you know, weird, like electronica music. He, he was just all over the place. In fact, later on, um, after the band broke up and he went on to play with, you know, other bands and stuff, he was in a Kiss tribute band for about 15 years. So he just was the, the strangest dude. But nonetheless, he, you know, a lot of vision for sort of that sort of, um, you know, the sound of the band and the way that he wanted to present it, so which was cool. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... I mean, that time when you guys were doing it, like you're saying, hair metal, as they call it, was the biggest thing. But yeah. there was also such an insanely vibrant underground scene. And so right. you had all these varied influences. But, you know, the drawing on the cover is obviously an homage to Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the you don't really sound like... Like you said, you're not trying to be Guns N' Roses or anything. But, like, you you talked about the replacements and stuff. It's... It's mm -hmm. definitely more in the Guns N' Roses direction than the replacements direction, probably. What you hear, what you, what you hear on that tape is, I think, um, you know, what we did, you know, the more official thing that I I sent you later on. Yeah, I think that's that's a better representation of where we were going. You know, and if I remember right, I think part of why that tape existed the way it did that you have, I think part of that was because we were trying to book shows. And we wanted it to be more like, you know, more representative of like rock stuff. So, because we, because our first, mu the first music we wrote wasn't anything like that. It was actually more like, um, more alternative and more, definitely more underground sounding, not quite so much like that. Because I do remember some of those songs were really poppy, pop, pop rockish, you know, and like you're saying, and I think the singer was, there was the, the a little bit of that raspy sort of uh, Axl Rose thing going on, but that that went away um, in a short period of time, and um, so you you had more underground influences going on later on. But you know, on that tape, it's definitely more that sort of vibe. Yeah, and I think the cover, when you're starting with looking yeah. at the cover, that's going to kind of bias mm -hmm. your you to you just to. To the hearing it as a certain thing but then yeah like you said the the studio recordings you made i couldn't even compare those to any specific yeah, totally band different. um it's, it's, it's very, very different right? and obviously not trying to be hair metal or anything like that so yeah
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, 
I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash Pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash Pantheon. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. I didn't ask you when you were playing like half covers in your set, what, like what songs were you doing? Well, the cult was a big influence. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we were doing all these cult songs. I mean, I think we played virtually almost, you know, every song off the electric album. Um, we're pretty close to it. The cult was big for us. We were doing some U2, some like B side stuff, like silver and gold. Um, we used to do a U2. And then we did uh, we do we did some replacements. We did some we did some misfits. I think we did die die my darling. I think we did misfits. Can't remember the um, replacement song we did. And you know then we did other you know kind of kooky stuff. We would do like you know Zeppelin's Dazed and Confused, but you know we would do like a 
into an extended improvised section too. That was another thing about the band in the last couple months of the band, we were, for the shows we were doing, we were doing all improvised shows. And which was a major like jump off the cliff, but we would do these shows that we'd have no plan. We'd have no set list, no anything. And we would just play if we would perhaps slide into a song that is one of our songs and we'd play it. Um, and we did a number of shows that way. So there was, a, you know, again, these weird sort of influences of not, you know, following the traditional mode of like, here's our set. Yeah. Um, so the band was very, very adventurous all over the place, you know. Don't believe it, they're too, too blind. 
kind of aspirations do you think you had at the time for the band? Was there ever a thought of trying to get a record deal or anything like that? Or did you never really get to that stage? We never got that far. Yeah. I think, I think the, um, the, the creation of the demo that you have, the last one, might have been that intention. You know, we knew nobody in the business other than the bands we were opening for. But we knew nothing about how any of that stuff worked. And we didn't know about sending material out to people. But again, we had nobody to send anything to. We were getting strong feedback from bands in the area that were, you know, once we got that sixth song out, you know, it, that's, I think, how we got the Kreutzen thing and, and other stuff. You know, there was interest in the band and um, people started coming to shows and things like that. Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't recall ever a unified sort of, well, let's, let's try to take this to the next level. I think it was, there was so much struggling from day to day and just getting along about like, what are we going to do for this show or what are we going to do for the, how are we going to write this next song? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think there was any sort of, you know, how do we keep this going forever <laughs> sort of thing. Right. Plus just, you're so young. During you know? that time period, it was like, you could have big dreams and it actually seemed possible. <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, I mean, kind of and kind of not. I mean, it's like, yeah. gosh, man, you know, I've been in so many bands, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's looking back on that era and looking back on, on, you know, what you could or couldn't do. I mean, it's just your classic who you know, right? And we knew nobody. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, we would, have, we would have had to have moved. I think yeah. to really start to create some connections. I mean, cause nothing was coming out of the woodwork. We weren't, we weren't really pounding the pavement that much. You know, we weren't gigging that crazily. And there were, yeah, man, you get, remember there were so many bands back then around here and so many places to play here in Wisconsin. Uh, you could play a lot. You could do quite a bit, but um yeah, it's interesting to think of it like that. I mean, I, I personally look back on it and say, you know, I can see a very unique thing here. I also see four people that are completely unproducible. <laughs> you know? Like if, if we got a deal with somebody, it would have just been an absolute implosion of, of uh, insecurity and, you know, fractured egos because nobody could have handled somebody coming in saying, okay, you got to rewrite this part. You know, it would have just been a zero. <laughs> A flat out zero you know these guys are these guys are idiots they're children you know so and that's you know that's not that uncommon it's a i mean that's a big stage man it's like you move through the industry you got if you go into that position point where somebody's going to come in and and produce you you got it man you got to be you got to have a thick thick skin and you got to be ready for it and you got to be able to then be able to be malleable enough of a musician to be able to tailor your music to whatever the direction needs to go. I can say for sure that band never would have been able to do that. Well, I think you told me at some point that the band has an interesting postscript. I think that's how you put it. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting about the band is so like, so Jensen, so the band breaks up and Jensen and I move on the singer. Um, and we formed a band called Maloko Shivers with two other guys from the Waukesha area. And we had that going for about seven years and, you know, pushed a lot of those set of sort of ideologies that were started in that band 
you know, trying to really be, you, you know, try to be as unique as you possibly can and wide ranging influences, that sort of stuff. And uh, so a lot of that kind of followed suit, I think, for the two of us and how we went through with that next band. And we had some some moderate local success and touring and things like that and some, you know, some label attention, stuff like that. So that was cool. Um, it was a, a great follow through um, to, to the, those beginning stages of being, you know, a kid writing original music. The bass player, John Berger, went on uh, to do a number of different things before he passed. He, um, he joined a band called Front of Truck that got pretty popular on the east side of Milwaukee. Again, some touring. That band ended up being a, <laughs> in a weird, like, man, I don't know what year this would have been, maybe 2000, 2001. They got featured on a VH1 show. It was a it was a it was a a touring band show, and it was it was a thing where they would take a famous rock band and then a, like a an up and coming band that was touring and like what their lives were like on the road, and it was Kiss and them. <laughs> so I never saw any of the episodes, but apparently I don't know how many there are, but there's a couple, and those guys were in that, um, and then so. And some of those, that band went on to work with some of the guys from Guided, uh, Guided by Voices and stuff like that. So, and then John uh, started his own group later on called American Death, which was like a rockabilly punk thing. Um, more like a country punk thing, I would say more so. And I played with him during that for a while. And he released a couple albums through Crustacean Records out of Madison. And uh, and then he passed in, in 06. And then Brian Shank, the, uh, the guitar player, went on to be in his tribute band. But, you know, what's interesting about the, the bands, the band and kind of where everybody went is the bands that we branched off into different areas. And before Maloko Shiver started, John and I, we were actually working with um, another band uh, that became the band Bleed. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of Bleed, but... They were a, a touring punk band, and we had a, a, a like a like a five or six piece group together with two, me and another drummers, two drummers, all kinds of craziness. But those guys went on to tour all over the country. Like I was saying, Shank he did he did this uh, this Kiss tribute thing, and he was he again also was touring around the country doing what that. What was too. his Kiss tribute called? Well, he was in a couple different ones, um, and I think one. One was called Dynasty, I think, and then there was then the the one that he did the most work touring with was Strutter, I believe. I saw Strutter in Madison. Did you? He was yeah, in so it would have been ninety five, ninety six, something like that. Yeah, I don't think he started working with Strutter until later, but I know he was with Strutter, and then there was another one maybe out of out of Detroit too. I'm not sure. There but. was one back then called Hotter Than Hell that I saw too. Yeah, and he might have worked with them too. You know, those guys they bounce around, and <laughs> yeah. they do. They go all over the place. They'll just, you know, because you just throw the makeup on and do the thing. So he went on to do a number of different those different groups. I don't think he's doing any of them anymore. I don't. I don't. I haven't spoken to him or or Jensen in a long time, so I don't really know what they're doing other than knowing that they're not out doing stuff. So, um, and then I just I'm the only one who stayed in the business. Really, <laughs> I'm just. Uh, I've been in about 20 bands or so, 25 bands since then. And this is my career, playing music and teaching it. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's cool that you've been able to make it your career. Yeah, you know, um, teaching has, has been kind of the main source of steady income in regards to that. But yeah, I've done, I've been able to get out and tour quite a bit around the country and in Europe and stuff. And I've played with some cool people over the years. Played with a guy named Willie Porter. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I don't know I've been with him for 20 years and uh, met some great people. And, you know, it's been a cool, cool career so far. Started with Stokes Astor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in uh, Waukesha. I graduated in 92 and I was really sure. into the local Milwaukee scene. So I definitely saw Maloko Shivers. I just can't remember specifically. I But mm -hmm. there were several of those kind of funk metal bands. Yep. But yep. I saw tons of local. There were so many. There were some really great. I mean, my favorites were Alligator Gun and Compound Red. Yep, we played with both of those guys. Yeah, yep. those were my favorites, but I saw so many Milwaukee area bands back in the late 80s, early 90s, and uh, yep, it was really fun seeing local bands. You know, it was a great thing. And, it was a uh, cool scene at that time, and you could be a really, you know, different band from another band, and, and people were acceptant of that. And so I, we did lots of shows with bands that were very different from us when I was in Maloko. And it, nobody cared, you know. And then Summerfest was like such a great way to see. Mm -hmm. That was the first place I saw Alligator Gun, and then I saw every Alligator yep. Gun show I could possibly see after that. But I saw yeah. tons of local band. You just we would just go spend all day at Summerfest, and so yep. you could oh, yeah. see tons of bands. Um, that uh, yeah, same here, man. It was it was it was a much different attitude that back then and in fact i think that was one of our last gigs stokes astor did we played summerfest i was going to ask um, you if stokes astor played summerfest yeah we did we did and it's funny because this is also back when uh the politics of getting into summerfest were in full effect uh because you know we were still we were nobodies and we'd been playing the clubs but we didn't have you know we were op we were an opening band and um it's funny my stepdad used to at that time provide all the he worked for a company that he managed a company that that provided all the groundskeeping equipment for Summerfest. And uh, he, he asked me one time, he's like, do you want to you want to play Summerfest? And I said, well, sure, of course I do. I was 18, like 19 or whatever. He said, well, I'll see if we can get you in there. So what are you talking about? How are you going to? He's like, well, I'm, I'm going to talk to Vic Thomas. I said, all right. So he talked to Vic Thomas and told him that he was going to hold all the the maintenance gear unless he booked his stepson's band. <laughs> so Vic Thomas booked us at noon on Thursday, the opening day. And, uh, you know, we didn't suck. So I guess it went okay. And then he, he did that to him again the next year with Maloko Shivers. Like one of Maloko Shivers' first gigs was Summerfest. And then, you know, we proved ourselves. So then they would book us, you know, as a real band. But you can't do that anymore. I don't think those politics go down anymore there. Well, they like had that. so many slots to fill. that you, They you... did. Yeah, it was. A yeah, right. I mean, it was we went on and played for, I think, shit. I think we played 45 minutes, maybe an hour at the most. It was noon. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, yeah. Back, back then there was a way to get in free, like almost every day. Yep. Um. There, you bring a can of food, or there would be a coupon in the newspaper. There's always a way to get in free, but you had to get right. there early. 
So we would just right. get there early and then see bands all day. And yeah. Yep. There was that. And they used to give away lots of free tickets. So like, yeah. check this out. Check this out. My stepdad used to get a stack of tickets, like 500 yeah. or a thousand tickets. And he would just give them to me. He'd say, give them to your friends so that they can come see you guys play. Yeah, they just wanted to get people through the doors because they made all their money off the beer and the food and everything else. So yeah, and they still do, but uh, yeah, but now they now it's like twenty five bucks or something to yeah, go. Yeah. Insane. Yeah, I don't play there much anymore. I mean, I usually play there once a year at least, but you know, um, but yeah, it was a totally different scene, man. It was cool to be able to, you know, when you were a band playing back then, you used to be able to uh also like go back to the stage and watch the bands that night and have backstage access they'd let you they'd honor your pass all day and you and you could also drink uh so you then they had tappers backstage so you could just go party and uh so you know we would go we would, we would do these opening slots and then we'd come back and hang out all day and you know watch the headliners usually they'd let you hang around until you know, the headliner or almost, you know, the, the opener to the headliner, they would, sometimes they'd let you stay all the way through, but it was cool back then. Not as cool anymore that way, but <clears throat> I know they had a bunch of legal things happen. So it affected, you know, letting people come back there like that. But now you play and you pretty much have to leave mm. mm-hmm. unless you're, you know, opening to the headliner, then you can hang around for a while. Well, it must have been a real I'm blast sorry. from the past when I contacted you about <laughs> Stokes Esther for a podcast. Oh yeah, man. Oh, to, to, yeah, for sure. I mean, and like, I think it's funny. I mean, every once in a while, I've had, I've had people say stuff to me about the band, you know, which is surprising because we never did all that much. But you know, I've had a couple moments here and there, which is cool. Um, and I think it's super cool that you you thought of this. Um, it's one of those things where you're you're in the middle of it and it's moving so fast, right? And it's like, and I'm, I'm sure you think back too, and you're that age. It's like the things you're doing, the choices you're making, and you know you don't you don't have any clue about what sort of impact anything is going to be. But I will say this: when we did that, I remember thinking to myself, you know, there's something, and maybe this is just me being excited about being part of it. But I remember thinking to myself, there's something really, you know, important about this for me. And like it was a, I don't know, it, it, it somehow ended up being so formative in, in my attitude about music. And for me, it's been important to be wide open as far as like appreciating everything and, and trying different things as a musician. And, try, you know, I've played with, you know, all kinds of different bands and music styles of music. <clears throat> and it's, I think being in that band at that time really cemented the ideology that forging ahead to try to be as much myself in the industry as possible. And, um, and then to, to be, you know, really, really open-minded uh, has helped me to have a career, you know, as opposed to like, where, you know, I think of where else it could have gone. Like, let's say I was playing in a band that was just doing metal stuff or whatever, right? Like, you can kind of fall into that sort of attitude of like, this is the way, this is who I am as a, as a, as a musician or an artist. 
And uh, I know for me, it just became everything is all music. Everything is is acceptable and, and part of my my being as opposed to I'm this type of musician or this type of whatever. So it's funny, you know, for, for a band that you know didn't do much, it did a lot for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think average people especially people who have never tried to play in a band or anything kind of take bands for granted but if you've ever tried to play in bands you know how hard it is to be any good and how <laughs> good you have to be to i like you know that if you take a hundred tapes of high school bands who recorded on a four track 95 of them are going to be horrible you know just a yeah. complete joke and so to yeah. have something that you can put on that some high school kids did in 1987 or whatever, and you could put it on now and say, yeah, this is pretty good. I mean, that's an accomplishment. It really is. It, you oh. know, it's because most of the time that is not going to be good. <laughs> so. Well, you're right. And I, I can testify to that too, because I've been teaching kids since I was, you know, since right around then. And uh, very few of them had bands, had any bands that were any good at that young, you know, um, it takes a lot of work, right? It takes yeah. a lot of, and it takes a lot of talent. You can't <laughs> the the people yeah, who can be in successful tight bands are really talented. It's it's not it's not easy at all. No, it's not. It, I mean, I think most of it though is is. I mean, I I do I do agree that it's a it's a talent thing for sure, no question. I think a lot of it though is just like so many other things, man. If you're putting that sort of time into it, like so. Let's just look at you know the like so as i'm using this band as an example right like our guitar player like i was saying had all this really creative vision for the band well the guy sat in his room and was listening to all this really bizarre music right but then he was practicing i mean i when i met him it was like this guy was practicing hours a day you know and it's like that's time that's time in concerted like sort of directive right you know, in those formative years of thinking of, you know, goals and, you know, what you want to do, the talent is certainly part of it. But I think a lot of that is, is, you know, what is the person's vision? What is the person's, you know, what are your goals, right? And if you set up a couple little goals somewhere along the way, you know, you can, you can do a lot. But, you, but one thing I can tell you right now is like at this age, it's so hard to get people to focus on, on what it takes to be in a band back then. When you had nothing else going on you're just a bunch of punk kids you know you could spend that time and you could work at it and that's the thing that's that's gone from youth that's one of the hardest things to be in a band and like to start it it's like to get people together to actually do it is what takes them and i think the hardest thing right now and i think it's it's um and to have again a unified sort of goal um you, you got to not suck, right? Yeah. yeah. Be able to do it. But I mean, it's like, if you have a vision for what you're going to do and then you stick to it and you work at it, you know, you can develop it. Um, and luckily for us, we had a guy that, and I, I really do think that it was a big part of shaping, you know, whatever that band was as a guy that was, he was just ahead of us. So he was way ahead of us in, in musicality. And it's a shame that he never, continued in, in the music business with a career that he ended up in a Kiss tribute band. It was almost like he, he peaked and fizzled out, you know, at 18, 19 years old. He was so far ahead of us. 
Mm-hmm. And so far, I had a lot of people that I knew even as I got older. I mean, the guy had all this vision. But, you know, you got to have all those things together. And it's it's like you, t- you look at the people that made a mark on, our, on us as musicians or, or people just with music, right? You look at the legends. And a lot of that is taken for granted. Like, well, they're just, you know, these people are magical, right? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Beatles or, or Beatles or, you know, U2 or Pink Floyd or you know, Metallica or take anybody, you know, anybody that's a superstar. And it's like, they just have those, I think those intangibles that are all unified and, you know, they can, they can keep it focused. I think that's the hardest thing. You know, people change, right? People, it's hard, a lot, hard enough to get along with people, you know, two people, <laughs> so four, <laughs> five, five, six people. But that's a lot of what my podcast has been about is that um, as a big music collector, mm-hmm. uh, what what I think the average people have no idea about is there's so many bands and songs that are just as good or better than the famous stuff, but nobody's oh, ever sure. heard of it. Yeah. So, and that's the stuff I have a passion for and, and always uh, trying to find it. So that's why that's I would cool. buy a tape like this. And mm-hmm. even listen to it, <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. Wow, that's really cool, man. I think you're right. I mean, excuse me. I mean, the junkyard of of music that never went anywhere is incredible. So, who do you play with now? Well, I do the Willie Porter thing, um, and um, he just did a new album, and uh, I've done about four of them with him. A tour with him when he when he brings the band. Otherwise, he does a lot of solo stuff. And then um, the last, since 2019, I've been doing my own music. Um, just drums being the, the centerpiece of the songs, you know. So um, you want to talk about obscure music. Uh, <laughs> that's about as obscure as it gets. Um, I did, I've done uh, two albums of just entirely drums. And um, conceptually being that they're, they're drum composition so i'm playing them on the drum set um and playing song forms so to speak it's not just like you know drum solo time Mm -hmm. even though it's just drum so um i've done a couple of those albums and then now i've kind of stretched out into um some uh more abstract stuff with with, uh modular synths and um weird sounds so to speak um i've got a new album coming out in probably uh february um that'll be my fourth one and i'm kind of doing that now more than you know i do the willie porter thing but i'm not really i'm not really joining bands per se um because at my age in my career kind of gotten to a point of i've been in so many bands that you know <laughs> have done some cool things but never really pushed on to to being a higher level of success which is is fine because i kind of made all my choices creatively like this is what i want to do for as creative you know this is creative for me so i'm just trying to do my own thing now and and spend this last portion of my career focusing on that and i figure if nobody's listening to my music anyways i might as well just do my own thing (laughs) you know because i've been in so many bands where it's like repeat you know we do a new album blah 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 and nobody you know pays attention to it and nobody you know so it's like i might as well just make my own stuff so
All right, there you have it, Stokes Aster. I want to thank Dave very much for joining me for this episode. What we're hearing right now is from one of Dave's drum albums called Drums on Low. Check him out at DaveShepke.com. And thanks for listening. achieve the American dream. The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. 
From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.